Hello, and a very warm welcome to the fourth episode of Tales of a Starry Night, a stories and science podcast on the wonders of the night sky. We are beyond the autumn equinox now, and in the northern hemisphere, as nights lengthen, it becomes easier to admire the planet Venus. At the moment, from the UK, you can see her rise around four in the morning before getting lost in the glare of the rising sun a few hours later. Venus, these days, is the morning star. With deep respect, let's begin with a story from Africa, how Moon made the world. In those days, there were no forests, nor savannah, no antelopes, no tigers, no birds, no women, nor men. The earth was but a great desert of mud without the slightest footprint, a smooth desert of mud. God lived alone in the sky, and he was getting bored. So one day, he bent towards the earth, started playing a bit with it, he took a bit of mud, and he fashioned it into a man, and this man he called Moon. Moon made a hut for himself, and sat down inside it, his chin against his knees, and waited. There was little else to do in this empty world of smooth mud. God saw that his man was alone and unhappy, so he shaped for him a woman in the sky and said, Moon, there is no need to cry any longer. I have shaped a woman for you. Her name is Morning Star. She will stay with you for two years before returning to be with me in the sky. When she came down, Morning Star brought Moon a very precious gift. She was carrying fire in her hands and laid it carefully, all crackling, in the center of the hut. Then she went to lie down. Moon was watching her, and for the first time he smiled. The heat from the fire was very pleasing, and its light spread over the body of Morning Star. Moon went to lie next to her, and they loved each other tenderly. The next morning, Morning Star's belly was all swollen, full of life, ready to emerge, and so she kneeled on the mud in front of the hut, and she gave birth to the trees, the plants, the grasses, and savannah that spread upon the earth. The sun rose over this new green world, and Moon and Morning Star were deeply happy. But then two years passed, and God called Morning Star back to him in the sky. Moon became very unhappy again. He sat in his hut, his chin against his knees. He even let the fire go cold and waited in sadness. After nine days, God took pity on him and said, Moon, please, do not cry. I created for you a second woman. Her name is Evening Star. She will stay with you for two years before returning to be with me in the sky. Evening Star then came down from the sky into Moon's hut and lay down by the fire that he'd revived in preparation. The light of the flames was caressing her body and Moon smiled and lay next to her. The next morning, Evening Star's belly was all swollen, full of life, ready to emerge, and so she kneeled on the grass in front of the hut and she gave birth to antelopes or birds 
and to boys and girls. Moon was so pleased that the following night he wanted to sleep with Evening Star again. But God warned him, Tonight, Moon, you will sleep on the other side of the fire. Moon pretended to obey, but very soon he found himself caressing Evening Star and making love with her. The next morning, her belly was all swollen once more, full of life and ready to emerge. And so she kneeled on the grass in front of the hut and she gave birth to tigers and leopards, snakes and scorpions, all those evil beasts that crawl and kill on earth. God was terribly sorry, terribly sorry to see this. He said to Moon, You didn't listen to me, that's too bad for you. But Moon was happy, happy on this earth with his wife, and so he shrugged off God's comment. But in the meantime, Morning Star from the sky had witnessed all that had happened, and she became terribly jealous. Moon had slept twice with Evening Star, yet only once with her. She was so jealous that she became evil and stopped the rain from falling. And so the rivers dried up, the springs stopped flowing, the grasses turned yellow, and Moon's children began to starve. It is your father's fault, said Morning Star, from the bluest, driest of dawn. And so the eldest son went to look for Moon. He took him out of his hut and strangled him. Then he threw his body into the ocean. But then, when the evening came, Moon came out of the waves and rose in the sky. And since then, every night, he pursues morning star of his wrath. Yet she'd given him so much pleasure that very first night by the fire. The two women, the two wives, morning star and evening star, both refer to the planet Venus, the brightest object in the night sky after the moon. It is the second planet of the solar system from the sun which it orbits in 225 days at an approximate distance of 108 million kilometers. With a diameter of 12,100 kilometers, Venus is only just smaller than the Earth and can get as close to us as 40 million kilometers. If you look at Venus through binoculars or with a telescope, you will notice that most of the time it's not perfectly round. At the moment, Venus is gibbous, but it can also appear as a crescent. Venus has phases, like the Moon, and this is due to its orbit lying within that of the Earth. One complete cycle of the phases of Venus, as seen from the Earth, takes 584 days, just over a year and a half, which is the time it takes for Venus to overtake the Earth as both planets rotate around the Sun the Earth slower on a higher orbit, Venus faster on a lower orbit. Venus is at its closest when it lies in inferior conjunction between the Earth and the Sun, and at this time it is mostly lost in the glare of the Sun for up to two weeks. However, since Venus's orbit is inclined by seven degrees to the orbit of the Earth, the, planets, the planet usually passes above or below the solar orbit. It can be observed 
with extreme care, because observing the sun is or near the sun is extremely dangerous for the eyes, and it can look like a ring. The planet's nighttime side is facing us, but sunlight filtering through its carbon dioxide atmosphere forms a luminous circle around the dark disk. Occasionally, Venus actually crosses the face of the Sun in a transit, but this only happened twice this century, in 2004 and 2012. The orbital motion of Venus then drives it out of the inferior conjunction to the west of the Sun, and as the Earth rotates eastward, we see it as the morning star, rising earlier and earlier in the east, climbing higher and reaching further west each night before dawn and sunlight catch it. Then Venus reaches its greatest western elongation, its maximum angular separation from the sun to the west, about 47 degrees, and through a telescope you'd see a quarter Venus. Then, as seen from the Earth, the planet reverses its motion, rising later and later and not reaching so high in the sky. This is the stage Venus is now at. It travels further and further away from the Earth now, so its apparent diameter decreases until it reaches superior conjunction, the far side of its orbit from us, when it is hidden once more behind the glare of the Sun. This conjunction lasts longer, and one loses sight of Venus for weeks until its motion takes it to the east of the Sun. Progressively, it emerges at dusk, the evening star, appearing higher and higher on the western horizon. Through a telescope, it would look gibbous, until it reaches its greatest eastern elongation and reverses its motion to appear closer and closer to the sun at dusk. Through a telescope, it would then appear as a crescent, increasing in size as it travels closer to us until it passes between us and the sun, reaching inferior conjunction once more and the whole cycle begins again. It is worth mentioning that, prior to the electrification of the world, people would have been more aware of the night sky, and Venus certainly was a conspicuous object, or two, the morning and the evening star. The African tale from the beginning of this podcast could well relate to astronomical observations, with the two wives being present in turns, morning star and evening star, with the absence of both a conjunction in between. The version I found mentions two years and nine days, but I like to think that the original was more astronomically accurate. Venus spends half its cycle as a morning star and half as evening star, about 290 days, close enough to nine months, the time of a human gestation. As Edwin Krupp suggests, this might be why this planet has been named after Venus, the Roman goddess of love and fertility, from about 100 BC. Or perhaps the name comes from her beauty and incomparable brilliance. The ancient Greeks called the planets planetai, the wanderers, for they move at will, it seems, against fixed backgrounds of stars. Because the solar system is flat and all planetary orbits are nearly in the same plane, the planets travel along an imaginary line called the ecliptic, which is also the path of the sun. Planets beyond the Earth can rise in the east and set in the west, but the inside planets, Mercury and Venus, are like tethered to the sun. Venus can only travel so far west as morning star before dawn catches it. She can only appear so far east of the sun 
as evening star at dusk before setting in turn. She always stays quite low on the horizon. This fact didn't escape the Aboriginal people of Arnhem Land to the far north of Australia. People who welcomed Morning Star's company when they rose before dawn to go fishing or hunting. With great respect, here is their story of Barnumbir. On the island of Braglu, the island of the dead, there lived a beautiful young woman called Barnumbir. She was extremely beautiful to look at, but most of all, she was shining, emitting a powerful glow of white light around her body. Her people then would have been very grateful for her company on those dark mornings when they got up really early to go fishing. Her life, her light, would have been most welcome to show them the way above the water. But there was a problem, and quite a big problem, Barnumbir was scared of the sea. She was so scared of drowning that she always refused to go on the water with them. The situation remained like this for a while, with Barnumbir stubbornly refusing to join the fishing party. Finally, two old women had an idea. They tied a long rope over Barnumbir's waist so that she could be brought back safely to the island of Braglu and the young woman was satisfied with this. The rope was tethered to a basket on the island, and that's where Barnumbir spent the day in this woven basket. From then on, she became the morning star, the companion of early rising fisher folks, and she never travelled far above the horizon, tethered as she was by a rope to her basket on the island of Braglu. In this story, the morning star is linked to the land of the dead, an association also present in other cultures around the globe. In place where the morning and evening star had been recognized as a single celestial object, then often personified and deified as sun and moon had been, its disappearance from the sky at the moment of conjunction with the sun could have been interpreted as death, or at least as a journey to the underworld. This could well be the case for Inanna, the Lady of Heaven, a most powerful yet somewhat willful and heady goddess associated with the planet Venus and worshipped as early as the 4th millennia BC by the Sumerians, the first great civilization of Mesopotamia. She was later assimilated with the deity the Akkadians, Babylonians and Assyrians knew as Ishtar. As a goddess, Inanna is associated with love, beauty and sex, but also with war, justice and political powers. She can be extremely fierce and is represented riding a lion and with an eight-pointed star as one of her symbols. Prominent amongst the myths that surround her character is the story of her descent to the underworld to meet and perhaps take powers from her older sister Ereshkigal. The Sumerian text, which records her journey, begins thus. From the great heaven, she opened her ear to the great below. From the great heaven, the goddess opened her ear to the great below. From the great heaven, 
Inanna opened her ear to the great below. In preparation for her departure to the Kur, the deep, dark and dreary underground cavern that is the underworld, Inanna dressed in her most powerful attributes, taking the seven divine powers. She put the headgear for the open country, a turban on her head. She put a wig on her forehead and hung small lapis lazuli beads around her neck. She put twin egg-shaped beads on her breast, covered her body with her pleated royal dress, over which she fastened a jeweled breastplate called Come, Man, Come. She put mascara on her eyes, a golden ring on her wrists, and took her lapis lazuli measuring rod firmly in her hand. Thus ready, she travelled towards the underworld, accompanied by Ninchubur, her faithful adviser. As they approached the gate, Inanna said, Hear, my faithful minister, and do not fail to follow my instructions, for this day I will descend to the underworld. When I have arrived there, make a lament for me on the rain mounds, beat the drum for me in the sanctuary, dress like a pauper in a single garment, and mourn me publicly, then walk for me to the house of the gods, first to Iker, the house of Enlil, and if it doesn't help, go to Urim, the house of Nana, and if it doesn't help, go to Erigdug, the house of Enki. Enki, the lord of great wisdom, knows about the life-giving plants and the life-giving waters. He is the one who can restore me to life. Go now, Ninshubur, for I will approach the gate of the Kur alone. Go and heed my words. And Ninshubur left, obediently and reluctantly. Then Inanna reached the gate to the underworld and knocked aggressively. Open up, Dorman, open up! Open up, Nettie, open up! I am alone, and I want to come in. Who are you? answered Nettie. I am Inanna, travelling to the east. If you are Inanna, travelling to the east, why have you travelled to the land of no return? I have come here to the land of no return to attend the funeral rites of the husband of my sister, Queen Ereshkigal. Now do let me in. To this Nettie replied, Stay here, Inanna. I will now go and report your words to my mistress, Queen Ereshkigal. And so he left to find the ruler of the underworld and said, My mistress, Inanna, your sister, is alone outside the door, intent on coming in. I saw that she is dressed in her most powerful attributes, that she has taken with her the seven divine powers. Upon hearing this, Ereshkigal slapped the side of her thigh and bit her lip in anger, for Inanna, after all, was responsible for her husband's death. She said, Come, Nettie, my faithful doorman, follow carefully my instructions. Let the seven gates of the underworld be bolted, so they can be opened one by one. Then if Inanna wants to come in, she'll have to renounce her attributes and be humbled according to the procedures. It will be done as you say, replied Nettie, and he returned to the door where Inanna stood waiting somewhat impatiently. 
Come on, Inanna, enter, he said. And as she passed the first gate, the turban was removed from her head. What is this, she asked, taken off guard. Be satisfied, Inanna, replied Nettie. A divine power of the underworld has been fulfilled. These are our ways. They may not be questioned. Then Nettie unbolted the second gate and let her through, and as she entered, the small lapis lazuli beads were removed from her neck. What is this? she asked again. Be satisfied, Inanna replied Nettie. A divine power of the underworld has been fulfilled. These are our ways. They may not be questioned. Then Nettie unbolted the third gate and let her through, and as she entered, the twin egg-shaped beads were removed from her breasts. What is this? she asked for the third time, and Nettie made the same reply. Inanna had to comply, and after passing through the seventh gate, she entered the underworld, humbled and naked. There she was summoned by the Anuna and surrounded by them, the seven judges of hell, who decide against her. Then Queen Ereshkigal stared at Inanna with the eye of death. She spoke against her the words of wrath. She uttered against her the cry of guilt. She struck her, and Inanna died in the land of the dead, and her corpse was hung on a hook. Three days passed, and in the land of the living, the faithful Ninshubur understood something terrible must have happened. So following Inanna's instructions, she made a lament for her on the rain mound. She beat the drum for her in the sanctuary. She dressed like a pauper in a single garment and mourned her publicly. Then she walked for her to the houses of the gods. First to Ikur, where she found Enlil and said, Father Enlil, do not let anyone kill your daughter in the underworld. Do not let your precious metal there be alloyed with the dirt of the underworld. Do not let your lapis lazuli be split with the mason stone. Do not let your boxwood be chopped up there with the carpenter's wood. Do not let young Inanna be killed in the underworld. These words threw Enlil into a rage, and he replied, Inanna craved the great heaven and the great below as well. The divine powers of the underworld are powers that should not be craved, for whoever gets them must remain in the underworld. Hinana has the fate she deserved, who, having reached the cur, could expect to come out again. Since Enlil didn't help, Ninshubur travelled towards Urim, where she found Nana and said, Father Nana, do not let anyone kill your daughter in the underworld. Do not let your precious metal there be alloyed with the dirt of the underworld. Do not let your lapis lazuli be split with the mason stone. Do not let your boxwood be chopped up there with the carpenter's wood. Do not let young Inanna be killed in the underworld. These words threw Nana into a rage and he replied, Inanna craved the great heaven and the great below as well. The divine powers of the underworld are powers that should not be craved, for whoever gets them must remain in the underworld. Inanna has the fate she deserved. Who, having reached the cur, could expect to come out again? Since Nana didn't help, Ninshubur travelled onwards to Eridug, where she made the same plea to Enki. 
full of worry, and shaking his head, Enki replied, What has my daughter done? So Enki removed some dirt from his fingernails and created the Kuriara. He removed some dirt from his other fingernail and created the Galatura. To the Kuriara he gave the life-giving plant, to the Galatura he gave the life-giving water. Then Enki spoke to them thus, Go and direct your steps to the underworld. Slip past the doors like flies, slide through the pivots like phantoms, Go and find Ereshkigal, attach yourself to her and relieve her suffering. Then she will offer you a gift. Ask for nothing helps, else but the corpse on the hook. Then let one of you sprinkle the life-giving plant and the other the life-giving water. Then let Inanna rise again. So the Kuriara and the Galatura left Eridur for the underworld. They slip past the door like flies, they slid through the pivots like phantoms, and went to find Ereshkigal. She lay as a mother who has just given birth, with no linen cloth to cover her shoulders and breast, and her hair was bunched up like a bundle of leeks. Oh, my heart, she said. You are troubled, our mistress. Oh, your heart, they said. Oh, my liver, she said. You are troubled, our mistress, all your leavers, I said. Who are you, she asked, who have come to help in my need? I can give you a river full of water in return. But the Kuriara and the Galatura refused. I can give you a field with its grain. But the Kuriara and the Galatura refused. Instead, they asked for the corpse on the hook, and she could not refuse. So they took the corpse, and one sprinkled the life-giving plant onto it, while the other sprinkled the life-giving water, and Inanna rose again. Yet as she was about to ascend from the underworld, the Anuna the judges seized her. Who has ever ascended unscathed from the underworld? If you are to ascend, you are to provide a substitute for yourself. And so Inanna left the underworld, escorted by demons, one in front of her holding a scepter in his hand, one behind her with a mace at his hip, and small demons forming like a reed enclosure, and large demons forming like a reed fence surrounding her on all sides. The first person they met outside was the mourning Ninshubur. The demon said, Inanna, proceed to your city. We will take this one back with us. But Inanna refused. Ninshubur is my faithful minister. She followed my instructions, mourning me in public, walking for me to the houses of the gods. Through her deeds I now live. How could I turn her over to you? Let us go further. In the city they met Kara, who sat mourning in the dust, dressed in a filthy single garment. The demon said, Inanna, proceed to your city. We will take this one back with us. But Inanna refused. Kara is my singer, my manicurist and my hairdresser. See how he is mourning my passing? How could I turn him over to you? Finally, they reached the great apple tree in the plain of Kulaba. There was Inanna's husband, 
Dumuzid. Richly clothed and sat on a throne, he didn't seem to be mourning at all. So Inanna looked at him, and it was the look of death. She spoke to him, it was the speech of anger. She shouted at him, and the verdict was guilty. She let the demons take him, a substitute for her, to the underworld. In the myth, Inanna tells the doorman she is travelling to the east, and as she subsequently disappears for days to the underworld, and so disappears from sight and dies, scholars have related this story to Venus's inferior conjunction, her transition from evening star in the west to morning star in the east. The ancient Greeks used two different names to designate the two aspects of Venus, most probably because they were originally thought to be two distinct bodies. As morning star, Venus was called Eosphoros, carrier of dawn, or Phosphoros, carrier of light. In her evening star aspect, Venus was called Hesperos, the evening. The corresponding Latin name are Lucifer, carrier of light, and Vesper, the evening. In his Historia Naturalis, his natural history, the first century Roman naturalist and writer Pliny the Elder writes, Below the sun revolves a great star called Venus, wandering with an alternate motion, and even in, in its surnames, reveling the sun and the moon. For when it precedes the day and rises in the morning, it receives the name of Lucifer, as if it were another sun hastening on the day. On the contrary, when it shines in the west, it is named Vesper, as prolonging the light and performing the office of the moon. Then furthermore, it excels all the other stars in size, and its brilliancy is so considerable that it is the only star which produces a shadow by its rays. There has consequently been great interest made for its name. Some have called it the star of Juno, others of Isis, and others of the mother of the gods. By its influence, everything in the earth is generated. For as it rises in either directions, it sprinkles everything with its genial dew, and not only matures the production of the earth, but stimulates all living things. It completes the circle of the zodiac in 348 days, never receding from the sun more than 46 degrees, according to Timaeus. Venus here is linked to fertility, but here she is also called Lucifer, the bringer of light. The words Eosphorus and Lucifer, both meaning carrier of light and referring to Venus as the morning star, appear in the first Greek and Latin translations of the Hebrew Bible respectively. They are used to translate a Hebrew term meaning brilliant son of dawn, found in chapter 14 of the book of Isaiah. Verses 12 to 14 read, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation, in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. 
yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. The prophet talked about the fall of a Babylonian king, but the description is somewhat fitting of Venus, who as morning star rises earlier and earlier, reaching higher and higher in the sky before being caught by the day. Yet that attempt to rise beyond the sun's reach is vain. As Pliny reminded us, Venus doesn't go further than about 46 degrees from the sun. Once more it seems to fall back towards the sun and disappears here again to the kingdom of the dead, the time of a conjunction. Later on, the church fathers associated the planet's fall with that of the fallen angel who tried to rise above God and was cast down to hell as a punishment. Lucifer became his name and gained a capital L not present in the Vulgate, the original Latin translation of the Bible. Both Inanna's myth and the Old Testament text describe Venus's disappearance as a sojourn in the kingdom of the dead. The relationship between Venus and hell doesn't end there, however. The planet's surface itself has been described as hell. The planet Venus itself appeared so brilliant, and its brilliance is so striking that it has often been reported as a UFO sighting. The main reason for such brightness isn't her size nor proximity, but the layers of unbroken clouds which reflect about 85% of the sunlight that reach them and hides the planet's surface from sight. With a similar size, mass, density and chemical composition to the Earth, Venus was considered a sister planet and there were much speculations that conditions on its surface might be Earth-like. However, this could not be further from the truth. In the late 50s, radio wave emissions from Venus were measured, forcing the conclusion that the planet was very hot, hotter than boiling water. The first man-made object to experience Venusian conditions was the Soviet probe Venera 4 in 1967. It discovered that Venus's atmosphere is mainly made of carbon dioxide before being crushed by the intense heat and pressure. Venera 7 was first to land intact in 1970 and registered a temperature of 475 degrees Celsius and an atmospheric pressure of 90 times that of the Earth, about the pressure you'd find by diving a kilometer deep into the ocean. The probe Venera 8, landing two years later on the other side of the planet, recorded identical conditions, with heat enough to melt tin, enough to melt lead. Why is Venus so hot, hotter than the death side of Mercury, despite the fact that most of the sunlight that reaches it is in fact deflected by clouds? The answer, as astronomer Carl Sagan puts it, is a providential warning to us. Venus is hot because of the greenhouse effect. The tiny 1% sunlight that eventually reaches its lower atmosphere and surface is radiated back at longer wavelengths at infrared, as infrared radiation. In turn, this radiation is trapped by the CO2 atmosphere, aided by a touch of water vapor and clouds of sulfuric acid. And this trapped radiation heats up the planet at levels beyond deadly to life as we know it. A clear warning that we shouldn't let our own greenhouse effect run amok. 
observation by probes suggests that Venus's surface is even more inhospitable, with little sunlight, thunderstorms, and rain of concentrated sulfuric acid. The winds there are quite sluggish, with typical speeds of no more than 4 km an hour, yet in Venus's upper atmosphere, the wind speeds reach 360 km an hour and the cloud features circle around the planet in about four Earth days. In contrast, a day on Venus lasts about 243 Earth days, longer than the Venusian year. Some of these features remained unexplained to this day. Life on Venus can therefore hardly be imagined, yet... On September the 14th, an article published in Nature Astronomy announced the discovery of, of phosphine on Venus, on Venus's atmosphere. Phosphine, whose molecules are made of one atom of phosphorus and three of hydrogen, is a rather unpleasant and harmful gas. Amongst other things, it is still manufactured as a pesticide and was employed as a chemical weapon during the First World War. Yet paradoxically, this discovery could point towards the existence of microbial life in the Venusian atmosphere. By analogy with what is going on on Earth, where it is produced by microbes, there are at the moment no alternative explanations, but an as yet unknown chemical process can of course not be ruled out. Life on Venus had been considered in the past, even following the sobering discovery of the planet's surface conditions. Carl Sagan and Harold Morowitz thought life could exist in Venus's clouds where temperature and pressure conditions are less harsh than on the surface and where alongside sulfuric acid, the basic ingredients of life as we know it can be found, water, organic compounds and sunlight. Further investigations are required and the consensus is likely to evolve. But Venus, it seems, holds many a paradox. We identified it earlier with the fallen angel, and it could well be identified with Christ as well, who, on verse 16 of chapter 22 of the Apocalypse, announces, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. There would be many more myths yet to share, but it's time for a break. If the morning is clear, look to the east as you get up. Venus will be there, beautiful and bright. Venus, the shepherd star, who keeps company to those working before dawn and after dusk. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you liked it, please share it. If you have any comments, please do not hesitate to contact me. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>